Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Hi, this is Ken Blanchard. We need a new leadership model in business today, one that values both people and results, where leaders see their role as serving instead of being served. In this podcast, my friend and colleague, Chad Gordon, interviews experts who help us explore different aspects of leadership. I know you'll be encouraged and inspired by what you hear and you'll walk away with ideas and insights that will help you be the type of leaders others want to follow. Ready to get started? I'll be back at the end of the interview where I'll share what I've learned and how I'll be putting it into action. Now enjoy this installment of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Gordon. So excited about today's guest. We've got Mike Runglin. He is more than 20 years of experience in the tech industry, uh, has roles at uh, Intel, at Microsoft, at Facebook. Most recently, he's the owner of, and the chief builder of Awesome People at Multiple Hats Management and the author of the book we're talking about today. This is your company, A Culture Carrier's Manifesto. Mike, welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Thank you very much. All right. So, uh, you know, I like to usually dive right into the book, but I'm actually going to do something a little bit interesting today. I, I One of the endorsements on your book is just, it just cracks me up. It's from Ken Blanchard himself. I'm just going to read it verbatim. He writes, quote, don't let Mike Runglin's spicy language fool you. He is as devoted as I am to the ideas of leaders caring about their people, supporting their growth and development, and setting them up for success. His chapters on the 50-50 relationship between people and their managers and on giving and receiving feedback are worth the price of the book alone. Read This Is Now Your Company. You'll learn a lot and be thoroughly entertained in the price process. So so that's that's a quote from Ken Blanchard, one of the uh, the the endorsements on your book. What is this about spicy? language <laughs> it's it's kind of one of my specialties i guess but you know i just the, the, when i first saw it i was first very grateful just to have gotten an endorsement at all but then i saw that one and just thought like bucket list item check i so, love it i yeah. love it. it and it's perfect coming from ken it absolutely yeah. is perfect so and, and this really is a fun book. It, it, it's a lot of fun, and it, and you, you what the, I think what I like about it, Mike, is is you hear your voice throughout the whole process. I love your storytelling, and you 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 share a lot of great examples of your your varied your long your history in in some of the most important organizations of our time. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. It, it, whether it's friends or you know other authors, people that know me at all, uh, that's actually one of the first things that they say. In fact, when I was debating whether or not to do an audio version of the book, which I eventually did, um, you know, friends, people that have known me for years were like, yeah, I, "I'd love to hear you do an audio book. I don't really need it. I can hear you in my head. This is exactly how you talk." So, you know, for a book that has a chapter on authenticity, I actually think that that's a pretty solid endorsement too, because that's what I was aiming for. And, and so, I, you know, I I love getting to do these podcasts. We get to talk to so many incredible authors, yeah. and, and and I get to see how people kind of structure, you know, how they want to get their points. I love the way you structure around. You know, we really focus in in a couple different areas about you and your company, you and the people around you, and then really one about you. So let's let's kind of dive into this book and give people a little taste about it. And you really start, and you know, you you have a lot of great examples of the organizations you've worked with. But one of the most important premises you talk about is it truly is it is your company you need to have ownership of it otherwise why show up to work yeah and you know i've i've done orientation in some degree at almost every company that i've worked for certainly if not new employee orientation like teaching managers how to manage for the first time um and the the persistent message in all of the companies that I've worked in is really, you know, every company kind of says, Hey, that treat this like it was your, you know, like it was your own, um, like you own the place and, you know, combine that with the, the other message that, you know, our employees are our, our number one asset. And I think if you combine those two things, if somebody is telling you on your first day that, you know, we trust you enough to really encourage you to think like an owner, um, then, you know, and you combine that with being told that, you know, you're the, the company's greatest asset, that 
conveys a, a degree of importance that I think is really important for for anybody in any company to take in. It's not just a tech company thing. I think people that just kind of wake up every morning and and want to own their contribution and, you know, the good and the bad that comes with that. I just, I've seen it over and over again, even through, you know, failure and mistakes. Those people are the ones that generally succeed. You know, and, and I appreciate that thought process and some of the stories, I mean, you really show great examples and you were one of the founding members of the, the, uh, the L and D team at Facebook. And so you were working side by side. I mean, when you, 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 you aren't a name dropper, but you actually share, well, when I work with Cheryl, as in Cheryl Sandberg, you know, when I worked with Mark, as in Mark Zuckerberg, you were, you were right there with them in, in, you came in an organization that had an interesting culture. That's clearly what brought you there, but you had an opportunity to further enhance that. So tell us about what it's like to to be on the forefront and and have the support from the top levels. Well, you know, it's interesting. And even now in my consulting practice, when I go in and meet with companies and like very senior leaders in those companies, they don't really register to me um, I don't really think a lot about level or title. I mean, certainly Mark and Cheryl are very well known and and highly accomplished. But you know, when you work with with anybody, they're your coworker first and foremost. And you know, there were very specific things that um, you know, in working with Cheryl, that she wanted to accomplish that I believed in deeply. Um, the work on you know managing unconscious bias, um, on you know getting people to really own. Uh, the importance of difficult conversations. That was actually one of the early things that I really bonded with the company over. And certainly with Cheryl was, uh, you know, her strong belief that the what would make a company kind of suck as it got bigger over time was that people would know each other less personally and be less forthcoming. And, you know, you combine that with some of the... Um, the research that shows, you know, what happens to communication as organizations and groups get bigger and bigger. And I thought, well, you know, that's something that I I can't write code and I can't sell ads, um, but I can help people figure out how to communicate more personally and more effectively um, in their time here. And so that was what I decided to focus on. And it was something that was really important to me and really important to the company. I love that. And, and, you know, just because you work at Facebook and, and again, I mean, the culture drove you there. So many people that came after you, that's one of the reasons that, that drove you there. You know, a lot of our listeners aren't working at Facebook and a lot of our listeners are, are at other organizations. And some of those organizations, the culture has gotten off the path. And yeah. so you actually address that, you know, what, what what's some of the things that I can do or what's some of the things organizationally, if you have the ability to do that, how do you get it back to where it needs to be? What, what's one of the first steps? So the one of the first chapters, I can't remember the exact order, but one of the first chapters is one uh, about what I call organizational Stockholm syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, every, every orientation class, and I spoke to thousands of new employees on their first couple of days, whether I led their orientation or just closed it. And, you know, I would ask all of them to raise a hand if the culture of the company was a deciding factor in their decision to join. And every, almost every hand, I mean, there were always a couple of outliers and I worked on them after, (laughs) but almost every hand for, you know, six plus years went up. And so I said, great, now it's your responsibility to not mess it up. Because if next week and the week after and the week after I ask that question and fewer and fewer hands go up, it's going to be partially your fault. And so part of the reckoning that I think everybody needs to do, and you can certainly do it on your first day, but there's no statute of limitations on it, is you can just ask yourself, like, what are some of the things that I am saying and doing um, in my day-to-day work that might be contributing to that culture that I don't like? And, you know, I used the example of hating passive aggressiveness, um, and, you know, one of the, one of the signs of passive aggressiveness in an organization is the number of meetings that you have to have to just say what needs to be said. And the more meetings you have to have, you know, the meeting before the meeting and sometimes several before that, and then nobody says what needs to be said in the actual meeting. So then you have to have several more. 
if you're if you're not saying what needs to be said in those meetings, then you are contributing actively, even by you know being silent. You're contributing to the culture um, that you say you don't want. And so I think you know first is kind of owning your role. And 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 again, if if the definition of culture is that it's just the sum total of all of our behaviors, then you can start tipping the culture in another direction by just changing your behavior and talking about why you're doing it. And I've you know I told thousands of new employees on their first day at Facebook, like whatever that thing was that you didn't like about your previous company, you've got to own what you contributed to it, even if it was silence, because if you don't, you're going to repeat it here. And it really is, I think the message that people are going to find here, and and you find it really in, in the title of the book, it is about you. And so, what do you, you know, what's your pushback to people who, who I wouldn't say spoon fed's not the right word, but they, they like to to kind of sit back and 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 wait for decisions to happen and not take control and and, and let's be honest, at a different time that was the norm. You know, you yeah. didn't have as much of a voice. This is a different time now. So you, your your belief is is if you don't take control, you're going to get passed behind. I, and I've seen it happen over and over again. And I, I mean, I think that this is where some of the tough love comes in and there's plenty of it in the book, which by the way, all of that tough love is tough love that I had to kind of swallow first. So I'm not asking anybody to go through anything that I haven't gone through myself. And I think the examples in the book are really of more of my mistakes than of successes. But I think if you really... um, if, if you really believe that a company can be better than it is, and if you really believe that you are, you know, capable of contributing to that, then I think being, you know, just constant vigilance and awareness of what you're doing and how it's impacting the people around you. I think there's, you know, there's a difference between people who kind of, and, and there's a psychological principle, local, locus of control that talks about, you know, is the world happening to me or is the world happening because of me? And I think there are ways that you can kind of shift out of that. The world is happening to me mentality. Um, there, you know, there are lots of questions and points to reflect in every chapter of, of the book to really kind of jar you out of that complacent, there's nothing I can do mode. And, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to be successful. But I think if, you know, for people that are willing to talk about their behavior and their contributions to problems and their desire for those problems to go away, I've just seen lots and lots of success in lots of different types of companies um, with people who are, you know, willing to go first. And, you know, what I want our listeners to understand, because, you know, we we think about Facebook and they've been they've been around for more than a decade. And, you know, it just seems like this incredibly massive organization that has reaches all over the cross across the globe. But you were there when it just had, you know, it had under 2000 people and and it it grew it to to, uh, around 25000 people. That that is a, a that's a massive undertaking to still allow people to have that that voice. Yeah. And, you know, even just the word allow, like they're, we didn't allow them to have the voice. We expected them. We required them to have it. Um, You know, one of my least favorite words in, in business today is empowerment. Um, because even if you're empowered to do something, it still kind of leaves you a choice. Like if this company sucks, like you're empowered to change it, um, just doesn't have the same ring to it as if this company sucks, you've probably done something to contribute to it. What is that contribution? And even again, if it's just silence or passiveness and what different contribution you could make um, to make a different outcome is a question I think that, you know, everybody has to ask. Very valuable. And I mentioned earlier, I talked about Ken Blanchard and, um, you know, he, he has a very strong belief in side-by-side leadership. So we're going to yeah. shift a little bit about, you know, the, the, the chapters about you and the people around you. And and you really advocate, advocate uh, you're, you're an advocate to, to say that you and your manager – you, it's it's a 50-50 relationship. What do you mean by that? So it, I've been doing manager development most of my career in lots of different companies. And I think, you know, one of the things that's always resonated with me about Ken's work on SL2 in particular was there's, you know, there was a slide. I don't, I, I can't even remember if it's in the current version. I think it is that, you know, leadership isn't something that you do to people. It's something that you do with people. And so, you know, philosophically that always resonated with me, but I think even more practically, you know, one of the things that I, I write about in that chapter about managing is a lot of companies put people 
or promote people into management roles because of not because of you know their potential as a manager, but because of their proven capability as an individual contributor. And you know that often has disastrous outcomes because the person that's you know moving into that management role is being moved into it for the wrong reasons. That said. Um, I think one of the other things that organizations do to really hamper managers is they, you know, they don't really create an environment that's conducive to managers and employees sitting down and saying, you know, uh, how are we going to get through this together? And I think every company that I've worked with or for, to some degree, has a list of, you know, manager expectations. And I included the, the ones that, that we built at Facebook in the book. There's nothing rocket science about them. You know, it's give people feedback, set clear expectations, give them, you know, recognition for a job well done. Um, But, you know, in every manager relationship that I've had, whether my manager was proactive or not and having the conversation with me about what those expectations were, I would be willing to sit down and say, okay, you need to give me feedback on a regular basis. Let's figure out how that's going to work. or, you know, I've been in, there have been many cases where, you know, I've changed managers or a manager comes in from the outside and, you know, doesn't really have any clue what's going on in the company. And so if you look at a manager's expectation to set clear goals and expectations, well, they're not going to be in a position to do that for a while. So that 50-50 relationship is my way of saying, you know, if you know more about something or if there's something that's very specific about your situation that requires, you know, special care and attention, then you better be willing to sit down with your manager to have that conversation. Because again, you are half the relationship. And if your manager has, you know, five, 10 direct reports, you are one of five or 10 different relationships that that manager is trying to figure out how to manage. And so all the better if you can sit down with them and say, you know, here are all of the expectations that the company has of you. Uh, let's, you know, let's sit down and talk through what my expectations are of you and frankly, what you're going to need for me in order to meet them. And I think the managers that, you know, that I've taught with that methodology and with that mindset, and certainly the people that work for them, I think, you know, it's, it's the one relationship in corporate America where so many companies are okay with nobody ever sitting down and having a conversation about what expectations look like. Um, and I really wanted to force people to, to kind of buck that trend and sit down and just talk about how they were going to get things done together. One of the greatest pieces of advice I got, and it, it was such a shift for me, is, is my manager, my leader – is is not sitting at home on their lazy boy every night thinking about how I can how I can excel, how I can improve, how I can move. It really is upon myself and then having those conversations with your leader. And you 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 really talk about the value of feedback in that mode as well, because a lot of people see feedback as as a four-letter word. They avoid it. They don't want to have any anything to do with it. You say actively go after that feedback, ask for it, yeah. uh, uh, live in it, desire it. Yeah. Well, and because, you know, <laughs> it's it's the only thing that really can save you from the worst of yourself, especially if you don't see the the impact of that behavior on your own. Um, and, you know, one of the other great thought partners and, and content partners that I've worked with over the years, the people at Vital Smarts um, and the creators of, you know, Crucial Conversations, I think have a really beautiful way of, of signaling how important those feedback conversations are to the health of an organization. And, you know, one of Joseph Grenny's quotes uh, that really stuck with me uh, throughout my career, but especially in my time at Facebook, was that you can measure the health of a relationship by the amount of time that passes between a problem happening and a problem being discussed. Not necessarily solved, but discussed. And I think, you know, when you talk about feedback as a as an organizational behavior, you know, it's always, we'll make it as timely as possible and and make sure that, you know, you're, you're considerate of the other person's point of view. And all of that is important. One of the things that I argue in the book, though, is that we spend so much time worrying about whether the feedback is positive or constructive or how to say it, we often forget to ask ourselves, is it even useful? Um, and so I think if you're on the giving end of feedback, making sure that the feedback is actually useful to the other person, um, cause if you're just going to tell them, you know, you did this thing and it was bad, they probably already know that since they're the ones who did it. Um, but if you say, Hey, you did this thing and this was the result, I think you could get a better result if you did it this way. And I, 
you know, I want to help you be successful. That's a much different approach. And on the receiving end, even if you get feedback from somebody that you can't stand or that delivers it really poorly, if you can dig in and say, okay, well, I completely hate the message and the messenger, but there's a kernel of that that's useful. So I'm going to focus on the utility of it and not as much on the giver or the the quality of it and still find something useful because ultimately whether or not you use it is going to be up to you. As Ken says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. Sometimes yeah, yeah. you're just not hungry. Though. Right. Sometimes you just <laughs> want eggs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's dig into the most important aspect of this book. And, and I mean, I, I really believe that is is the impact on you and, and what yeah. you bring to the table. You, you spend much more time on that because this is the thing that you as an individual picking up this book can have the most um, just the most resounding uh, positive effects. So um, the thing that was really interesting to me and I, I, you, you made me kind of challenge one of my uh, uh, assumed constraints. You talked about um, stop building a personal brand, just yeah. just focus on building a reputation, and, and I, I, it made me think differently about that. So tell me about that. Why did you think that was that was an important thing to call out? I mean, I, it just, it grosses me out when people talk about themselves as though they're products. And, you know, I think, especially having worked in social media for six and a half years during, you know, a really formative time in the company's history. And, and, you know, we acquired Instagram while I was there. We acquired WhatsApp while I was there. Um, and, you know, people really, Facebook went from 600 and, I think 680 million people using the site to over 2 billion when I left. So the ubiquity of Facebook as a, as a suite of applications and as a part of people's lives really grew significantly while I was there. And one of the things that, you know, I think has happened over time is that, uh, you know, people have, have resorted to kind of treating their, their Facebook presence or their Instagram presence as just a full-time branding opportunity. And, I don't think that we, I don't think that resonates with most people. I think we might click on it and we might, you know, like it, we might comment on it, but I think we, on a fundamental, like, in really important level, know when we're being marketed to versus when we're, we're really experiencing a person as he or she is. And when I hear people talk about building a brand, I, I, I instantly go to marketing and a lot of marketing, you know, it's, it's kind of like you're trying to build a brand, but you're like, you're trying to build like the picture of the hamburger versus the hamburger that you open at, at the right. at McDonald's. Like it just never looks that pretty. And I think, you know, one of the things that I hope people get more comfortable embracing is this notion that, you know, your imperfections are part of what make you interesting and unique. And if we try and market and brand ourselves away, because, you know, very few people are going to build a brand that focuses on all of the things that are wrong with them. Right. So I just, it, 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 the inauthenticity of it is the thing that grabs me the most. And I totally stole a quote from, from Cheryl, um, in a talk that she gave, I, I think it was in a, in a magazine interview that she did where she said, you know, toothpaste uh, has a brand, you know, laundry detergent mm-hmm. has a brand, you have a reputation, focus on building that. And I think if you're trying to build a brand, it's like, how can I, you know, market myself or manipulate people to think about me versus how can my work and the quality of my work and the content of my character speak for what I value and what I'm capable of so that, you know, and, and consultants speak, you know, the best compliment is getting more work. And I think people give more work to people that ultimately do great work, not people that know how to really market themselves. And so you're out there, you're, you're, you're creating a reputation. So people know uh, that, that what you actually do has got some, some taste to it. It's not just the sizzle. Um, And then you dig a little bit deeper into focusing on being kind of proud about what you're good about and not being, um, uh, you know, not letting that sit in the background, actually putting that out there so that people understand what your strengths are yep. so you can really shine at where you are really good. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, again, I think so much of the, I hope that it comes across that so much of the logic in this book is really taking things that are, you know, fairly simple to grasp, but twist them just slightly to have a massive uh, impact differential. And I think, you know, Marcus Buckingham is somebody that I look up to. He wrote the foreword for this book. Um, philosophically, I'm incredibly aligned with him as well on the importance of really honoring your strengths. And, 
I don't know what it is. If it's, it's just, well, I do know what it is. It's social conditioning. We're like, we're brought up, especially in Western culture to believe that it's somehow more acceptable to, you know, be humble about the things that we can't do than to be proud of the things that we can look the list of things that I'm really, really good at is super short. Um, you know, there's five, 10 things that, you know, I will hang my hat on every day, um, that I'm proud of that I've spent a lifetime and a whole career honing and fine tuning. And those are the things that I just know I'm going to have the greatest impact. And that's true for everybody. I think, uh, you know, this notion that it's somehow better to be, you know, proud or not proud of, but maybe humbled by your weaknesses just doesn't interest me because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to apply for a job and say, wow, I'm terrible at eight of those 10 things. What a great opportunity for me to, you know, try something new. Like, I just, I don't subscribe to that way of thinking at all. And I think that the more, the more people that I've worked with over my career, where you could really tell that they were, you know, very, very aware of what they were good at, humble about it, because again, the list of things that I suck at is way longer than the list of things that I'm good at, but really hone in on that stuff and don't get distracted by the things that, you know, they're, they're just never going to be good at. Um, is important. And, and, and working in tech for as long as I have, every tech company that I've worked for has been incredibly engineering driven. And it's easy, I think, if you work in a non-engineering function to feel, you know, somehow second class or, or have a, you know, an inferiority complex because you don't do the core function that the, that the company does. But, you know, I, none of those engineers more than likely would have ever wanted to switch places with me and teach classes any more than right. I would have wanted to switch places with them and write code. So I think if you can, you know, accept the notion that everybody brings something very specific and unique and you create opportunities for them to really own that stuff and, and relentlessly focus on it, I think the company just does better. All right. But then there is a flip side to that coin. I mean, life would be pretty boring if we were, I mean, well, it'd be kind of fun in some cases if every <laughs> single day we did exactly what we excelled at and we got an A plus every day, but there'd be a certain point where you, I think you'd lose your edge, right? So, so what do you do um, when you're faced with some of those challenges? What do you recommend that people do when they are terrified of this next stage or they're terrified of taking on this new task? I mean, because that's going to come up. If that doesn't come up, you should change jobs. For you need sure. to be challenged all the time. So how do you focus on those times when you are, you're actually kind of scared about what's ahead of you? So I'm going to dip into my years of facilitating SL2. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I think back to like, how do you keep somebody that's at a D4, you know, highly competent, highly committed, how do you keep them there? And I think, you know, again, going back to the 50-50 partnership with your manager, I think some of that is on you, right? To say, you know, I'm, I've, I'm really good at this, and but I'm kind of on autopilot. So, you know, maybe instead of, um, you know, teaching, you know, orientation, which for many companies, and I think Facebook was one of them, orientation, while complex, is kind of the the easier facilitation route, um, you know, it's, it's a much more complicated thing to, to teach crucial conversations or to teach SL2. And so I think, you know, saying, okay, what is my core strength? It's facilitation, but I'm kind of getting burned out on doing orientation every week. So, you know, let me dig deeper into some harder content or some more complicated content or a more challenging audience where I'm still using the same core strength, but I'm using it in a different way. Um, I also think, you know, I, I posted something on Facebook a couple weeks ago um, that had a really interesting, pretty large response. I talked about the fact that, you know, when I worked full time for other companies, I really hated the financial side of my work, like managing budgets and, and expenses and all of that stuff just never interested me at all. And I really, really hated doing it. And, you know, now that I own my own company, I'm fascinated by it and I really enjoy the forecasting and I really enjoy kind of planning all of the things out. And when I sit down with my CPA, I'm like, you know, tell me what you're doing there. You know, teach me like wh what's the thought process behind that exemption or that thing. If you would have asked me, you know, a month before I left Facebook, if I would ever be excited about finance, I would have just laughed and said, no, of course not. Um, which gets to the notion that, you know, all of your strengths aren't known. Now, I'm not great at it right. by any means. I still am going to keep that CPA on speed dial. But the the changing environment, you know, now it's not just me being a part of a company, but it's me owning my company. Um, yeah. That one variable changing was enough to make the the task 
of, you know, running the financial side of the business a lot more interesting. And so, you know, and in classic Marcus fashion, I have discovered a new strength. And in classic Ken fashion, I am D1 at it. And so I think, you know, everybody has those opportunities if you just pay attention and and look for things that, you know, might not have been interesting in one set of circumstances, but you change a couple of the environmental considerations and suddenly you've got a, an emerging strength. Well, any time that you want to take on my expenses, I'm happy to happy to. This podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, and there's a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization, go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. And they have a special offer right now. Send an email to podcast at KenBlanchard.com with Leader Chat in the subject line. Now through the end of summer of 2018, one grand prize winner chosen randomly will receive a free one-on-one call with Ken Blanchard. Five others will receive a signed copy of Ken's latest book, Servant Leadership in Action. Let's dig a let's li- li- dig a little bit deeper. We've got time for a couple more questions, and one of the chapters that uh, that you share, and one of the things you actually go out and, and speak on often, is around unconscious bias. Yeah, and so that that's that's in the news more recently. Yep, um, and it's it's everywhere. It's it's in it's in organizations with incredible cultures. It's in organizations with 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 crummy cultures. So, I just want to hear your thoughts on unconscious bias and. And what a person can do to to recognize that and maybe maybe grow. So, and you're right. It, it's in every organization. It's in every person. So, you know, by definition, since companies are just the sum total of the people that work there, every organization has bias in it. And you know, one of the things when I teach this content that I that I speak about is that you know, biases can be really helpful and useful. Organizational values are biases. Um, you know, we had values at Facebook. Uh, one of the most popular ones was move fast. We had a bias mm-hmm. for moving quickly. So if we were interviewing somebody or somebody was working at Facebook and they were moving too slowly, they would feel the weight of that bias because the bias for speed was was really just ever present. That was a bias that, you know, for the most part served Facebook and continues to serve Facebook really well. So, you know, that is a very conscious bias and it's useful. Um the unconscious stuff is, you know, the stuff that just accumulates over a lifetime without your knowledge and that can be activated without your knowledge. And it, it leads, you know, organizations of all types to, you know, to get results that they consciously would say they absolutely don't want. And, you know, it was interesting when I got pulled into to work on this. Uh, you know, to kind of tie your last question and this one together, I didn't have any subject matter expertise on this at all. Um, right. And my, you know, my experience and the reason they pulled me in was as a facilitator and as a content designer, but it wasn't as an expert on bias. And the the good thing about that was that it forced me <laughs> to really, you know, as with everything that I teach, it, it's really hard for me to get up in front of a room full of people if I haven't spent a significant amount of time kind of thinking and reflecting on what it looks like in my own life. And, you know, when in preparing to do that class um, and taking some of the implicit association tests at um, Project Implicit has, um, I was really shocked at the results. You know, I, I had a very strong association, not a bias, but an, uh, an implicit association between, you know, women being at home and men being at work. And if you would have asked me consciously, I would have said, well, of course I don't have that. You know, my mom went back to work when I was five. I've worked in HR my whole career. All of my leaders are women. Everybody that I reported to at Facebook until you got to Mark was female. So I thought if anybody's going to, you know, be kind of immune to that bias, it would be me. And not only did I have a strong association between women being at home and men being at work, it was a strong one. And when, you know, I shared that with Cheryl, she's like, well, of course you do. You live in the world. You watch movies, you read books. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the the main message that I try and convey to anybody with regards to bias is, of course you have it. And, you know, good people, bad people every every person has it and the question is you know do you do you have the scientific curiosity i talk a lot in the book about being a scientist of your own behavior can you step back and kind of dispassionately just say you know for example when you meet somebody for the first time 
after you've parted ways, just taking a minute and saying, why did I have the reaction that I had to them? Why did I like them? Why did I not like them? The things that we just don't do because our brain really just wants to move on autopilot. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of talk now about whether or not the training is actually worthwhile or if it does anything. I think if it's done well and if it's framed as, you know, our goal here is not to eliminate bias because that's not possible. Our goal is to create, you know, organizations and people within those organizations who are comfortable talking about bias. Um, that's a far better metric. And I think one that um, you're going to continue to see organizations investing in whether, you know, the immediate ROI of, you know, maybe increased diversity or, or better inclusion isn't isn't there immediately. I think in the long term, if we're going to make meaningful progress on this, we've got to stop or we've got to stop being afraid, and we've got to start talking about it. Yeah, and I I think uh, genera- generationally, it's going to adjust. It's going to change. Um, things continue. I think you know, from my perspective, awareness is a, is a very powerful tool. And and if you have that awareness, you know it's 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 out there, and you can at least uh, give it the the credit it's due. So let's let's talk about something else uh, um, that you you cover in the book, and I, I actually love this chapter um, because we talked before about fear, and fear yeah. will keep people from moving forward into uh, into a project, into moving into a new a new role, a new new department. Um, you talk about failure, um, yeah. and and sometimes people don't ever get to failure because they fear even starting that project. Um, but failure is, is kind of important to grow, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, I can't remember if I actually wrote about it in the book or not, but one of the most impactful things that I've ever listened to in my life was a commencement speech that JK Rowling gave at Harvard. I think it was 2008 or 2009, 2009. Um, and she talked about the importance of imagination and the fringe benefits of failure. I think that was actually the, the title of her speech. And to what you just said, like one of the things that she pointed out that I will never forget and, and drives a lot of my decision-making is that, you know, the only way to avoid any failure is to live so conservatively that you really haven't lived at all. And then you've failed anyway. (laughs) So she paints a very compelling picture of, you know, not doing things or giving into fear is failure. So while you might be afraid of failure and not wanting to do something, if you give into that fear, you fail by default because you didn't even try. And I think, you know, one of the things that that I like to use as kind of a coaching device, and I do write about it in the book, is, you know, using kind of the most dramatic extreme example when somebody's like, yeah, I, I, I really want to try this thing, but nah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of afraid of, of what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, I'll just deadpan like, yeah, it's, it's probably going to kill you. Um, and you know, they're like, wait, what, what, how did you get that from like taking on a project is going to kill me? I'm like, no, it's probably going to kill you. You're smart to avoid it. And they're like, no, it's not going to kill me. I'm like, oh, okay. Well then if it's not going to kill you, then is there really like, what are you actually afraid of then? And I don't use that to be condescending, but it really kind of jars people out of their like, oh, I'm acting as though there's going to be some dire consequence if it fails. But the, you know, most of the time when people fail, Um, their worst fear at work is, you know, getting fired. I don't see a lot of people in my career get fired for failing because they were trying something new or innovative. I see people get fired for failing because they've, you know, continuously make the same mistake. Um, But that's not the same as trying something that you think is going to improve something and then having it not work out. And I think, you know, organizations, again, one of the, the things that I loved about Facebook was all of the posters we had everywhere. One of them was, you know, fail harder. And another one that's like really, uh, really famous externally as well is the question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Um, And I like to actually rephrase that question. What do you do when you are afraid? Because people are afraid all the time. Um, And I think, you know, again, if you get into scientist mode, when you feel that fear and ask yourself, what am I actually afraid of? What is the worst case scenario here? I think, you know, getting us out of that emotional state and into a rational thinking state, um, 
you you tend to realize more often than not then the fear is completely unjustified as most fears are um and you know you can really kind of plot a path forward to say okay well if i wasn't afraid or if i knew how to manage that fear what would i do and that was something that you know we encouraged people to think about um all the time because the only way that you're going to know that something is or isn't going to work is if if you try and if you fail if you can learn something from it then you know was it really a failure we're talking with Mike Ronglin. He's the author of This Is Now Your Company. And we've just got time for a couple more questions. And and there's this interesting one. And it, I, I read it in a couple different ways because I found it interesting. You having the background you had working at Facebook and you have this whole chapter around being happy and fulfilled versus having it all. Yeah. And a couple things just sprung up for me because – you know, the life of, you know, in, in the world right now, we live with Instagram, in the world we live with, with Facebook, uh, we almost, in a lot of cases, share that we do have it all, everything's wonderful, everything's hunky-dory. And I bring that up just, I found that to be very interesting. I want to hear your take on that. Also, I want to point out, you and I had a very similar life path yeah. where I too left Chicago and moved out to California, and I did have some tears yeah. and some some sadness along the way because I was I was leaving a known entity of happiness in a very dialed in world. So, yeah. talk about that a little bit in the respect of 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 what you want want people to understand when they read that book and how they can they can learn from your 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 experience. Yeah, I, well, and you know, again, this is another example of being pulled in to to deliver content and a learning experience. In this case, it was with Carolyn Everson, who runs the global sales team at. Facebook. And she really wanted to pull together a program that acknowledged the fact that Facebook expected a ton of people, you know, lots of travel, aggressive goals, the product was changing all the time, like the the mental and emotional and physical cost of working at Facebook was, was high. Um, but, you know, she also wanted people to have, you know, equally um, but it was rewarding. And I think she wanted people to have equally rewarding lives outside of work. But doing so meant, you know, being very aware of the trade-off decisions that you were making. And, you know, when I left Chicago for California to to take the job at Facebook, um, it was a, a really high trade-off. I love Chicago, which is why I live here again. Um, but, you know, as I kind of blubbered my way out to California, you know, I resolved by the time I got to California that, you know, this was a trade-off decision. I made this decision knowingly. Um, I'm not going to complain about it. It's, you know, it's not probably going to be forever, but, you know, for right now, I am making the trade-off of, you know, my my personal happiness with the location that I live in, Chicago, um, for incredible opportunities and professional happiness with doing the work that I was about to do at Facebook. And it wasn't easy, but I was, I was very aware of the fact that, you know, I couldn't have both. And so the reason that I, you know, say focus on being happy instead of having it all, A, it's not possible. Like what you were talking about earlier with, with, you know, uh, you know, how you present yourself on social media, on Instagram, on even LinkedIn, you know, like everything is for most people, for if many, if not most, is incredibly manicured and curated. And, um, you know, I've, I can't remember where I heard it, but some somebody said one time that, um, you know, people tend to position themselves on social media with their, like, this is my greatest hits instead of, but they present it as though it's their behind the scenes. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, it perpetuates the notion that, oh, it's possible to have it all. It's not, it's, it's bullshit. Um, pardon my French. Um, but I think the, the reason that you have to call it for what it is, is that if you keep trying to live up to a standard that nobody is living up to, no matter, you know, how they're portraying themselves, then you're never going to succeed. And I think, you know, again, you can be scientific about this. You can list out, as I have in the book, there's actually an activity that you can do where you kind of list out your priorities. Um, and then you list out, you know, I'm saying that this is my number one priority is my behavior in line. And if it's not in line, why? And if it's not acceptable that it's not in line, what am I going to do about it? And 
you know, again, I think when we talk about things like happiness and which is in and of itself an emotion, we tend to get emotional about our emotions instead of being rational about them. And so, you know, one of the things that I did for myself and I did for lots of employees at at Facebook and, and hopefully even more now with this book is say, you know, put all of that on pause, put everybody else's expectations of you on pause. And let's just take an inventory of where are you? Um, you know, how does that align with what you say your priorities are? And if it's out of line and it's not acceptable to you or the people that you care about, you know, what are you going to do about it? And accept the fact that that's probably going to mean, you know, giving something up to get something that, that you think matters more, but you can always change your mind. And, you know, I'm back in Chicago now after six years because I eventually got to the point where, I changed my mind. I said, you know, it actually is important for me to be back there and I want to pursue other things and other interests. And so, you know, which led to the last chapter of the book, which is about leaving and leaving well. And I, you know, when I was ready to go, I made the tough decision to leave and I loved the company as much on my last day as on my first, but my priorities had had changed and shifted. And so I had to make the tough decision to, to act accordingly. Great story, great insight. Uh, I'm going to give you the final uh, final word here. So as we wrap up, what's the one thing that you want our listeners to kind of take away from our conversation today? So, I mean, I think the reason that I wrote the book, there were a couple of reasons that I wrote the book. One is that I've, you know, I've had the great fortune of working with some of the most incredible thought leaders in this space. You know, Ken, obviously with SL2 and Marcus and Strengths and the folks at Vital Smarts. Uh, Tony Schwartz and the Energy Project on on the stuff on work life balance and having a fuller life, and you know invariably when you talk about Facebook, especially Facebook's culture with people from the outside, um, one of the things that I learned over time was that things that I took for granted as just common sense because they were common at Facebook were not common sense to other people, you know, talking about the passive aggressiveness of all of the meetings before the meeting, and then all the meetings after the meeting, I found that I could say that. And I would have, you know, CEO, CMO, CFO level people in the room, and they would kind of like nod and laugh and kind of grimace a little bit like, Oh, that's real. And what I took away from all of that was this is a this is a message that actually isn't common. Um, that isn't, you know, kind of broadly out there. And, you know, I don't want every company on earth to, to function and feel like Facebook. Um, I want every company to function and feel like it's a place that reflects the people who are there. And I think, you know, that was something that we worked really hard at at Facebook. Um, I think, you know, the fact that the culture still felt very familiar to me at 25,000 people when I left, as it did at 1,700 people when I joined, is a testament to that work. And I think that it's repeatable. Um, but I think that, you know, one of my one of my strengths is being able to talk in fairly plain terms with, as Ken called it, spicy language. Um you know, to, to have these conversations about topics that people either assume aren't a big deal or they assume that everybody's on the same page and then, you know, find out actually they're not. So I wanted to get that story out there. But I also, you know, I, I think that the I've, I've been in the position of being that helpless victim mode thinking employee of like, God, this culture sucks or this company used to be so good and now it isn't. And man, that sucks. I'm going to leave. And after you do that a few times, you realize two things. One is that you are still having to take yourself with you. Um, But two, to get all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, that organizational Stockholm syndrome thing is true. You will repeat the same crappy behaviors that you hated in your previous company if you don't take full inventory of, you know, A, why were you doing it? B, what value did you get out of it? And C, why didn't you stop? And I think, you know, throughout the course of, of writing this book and and having people read it and get feedback on it, I think the, the main theme that's come back is, I never really thought of it that way, but now I can't unsee my contribution. And if I don't like that contribution, I want to change it. And so I think that, you know, the, the, the overarching message throughout all of the chapters is you have a lot more power than you might realize. And if you wield that power, you can not only benefit yourself and the people around you, but you can have 
a pretty transformative impact on the entire company and that you should do that. I love that. <laughs> and I, so Mike, I appreciate so much you uh, taking some time to, to share your thoughts and, and we could dig a little bit deeper into your new book and I wish you great success. I, I welcome all of our listeners to go out and pick up a, a copy of Mike's new book. Now, this is now your company. Uh, fantastic book. Uh, um, how can people find you if they want to dig a little bit deeper into you, Mike? So certainly on on LinkedIn, but I would be remiss if I didn't just say you can find me on Facebook. <laughs> and of course, you can find the book pretty much anywhere books are sold. This is now your company, Mike Rungling. Congratulations thank on the you. new book. And thank you so much for joining us on the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Chad. And thank you for joining us for today's podcast. If you enjoyed this interview and like to learn more and also help us grow the audience, please subscribe to the Leader Chat Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening. And please share this with your friends. The best way you can help us grow, though, is feedback. As Ken Blanchard says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So please write us a review if you haven't already. And by the way, this podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, there's even a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization. Go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. Thanks again to our guests for joining us today. For now, I have the pleasure of turning it over to Ken Blanchard for his thoughts on what we discussed. Here it is, your final minute with Ken Blanchard. This is Ken Blanchard. I got a really big kick out of Chad's interview with Mike Runglin. Uh, you know, he only had to say pardon my French once, uh, but, you know, his content is really good. His book, uh, this is now your company is is really an important contribution. And, you know, as I was thinking about it, it really combines two things that I'm very uh, interested in. One is the whole concept of uh, uh, servant leadership. Uh, you know, how do you really become a servant follower? I think he's really talking about most people don't want to talk about followers as being servants. But we're saying if it's your company, then you got to have an impact uh, in the organization and stop whining. What can you do to have an impact on the culture? And so uh, that includes how do you manage up? You know, and when you manage up, you don't have position power. You only have, you know, personal power. So you better develop a relationship first. So you give them feedback and, and help because you want to be there for the, the managers uh, to keep them going in a good direction that can really be exciting and create a great culture. And the second aspect of that is how do you uh, take a good idea and a good initiative and be a part of really pushing that throughout the organization, which is as, you know, functioning well as a direct report. And I think that's really important. The other aspect that ties into what I'm excited about, too, is the whole concept of self-leadership, which is, you know, you know what can you do to, uh, you know, feel good about yourself, you know, so that you feel comfortable being a potential change agent in the culture. You feel comfortable with this being your organization now. And, uh, you know, because so often uh, people just don't feel the confidence in themselves. What you got to remember is that you're beautiful. You know, we all have different skills and all. And they brought you in this organization to make a difference. And you want to make a difference, not just kind of, you know, do your job and head home. But how can you help the organization and its culture, you know, be important to you and other people because it is your culture. So uh, I think what Mike's doing here is really important and powerful. And I think that you ought to spread the word. Now he talks about a lot more things than I'm referring to because uh, <laughs> that's just what he does. And, and, and there's lovely stuff and fabulous stuff there. So listen to it. Be somebody who can take control of your life and also be an important part of taking control of your organization, not for your own self-benefit, but to create a culture that you and everybody wants to be a part of. 